1: Greetings and welcome to Forma, a podcast that features conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education, aesthetic wonder, and Christian community. I'm David Kern. Today's episode of Forma is brought to you by the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, where they are preparing the next generation of Christian leaders through a great books course of study emphasizing faith, wisdom, and virtue. Honors students at Azusa Pacific enjoy several benefits, including an honors scholarship, small Socratic-style classes, a curriculum with no secondary textbooks, exams, or busy work, exemption from general education courses, access to honors housing, and free trips to world-class arts experiences across Southern California. Learn more about the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University at apu.edu slash honors. Again, that's apu.edu slash honors. This is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. I've known Ken Myers for many years, uh, since my father first met him more than a decade ago at at an education conference. And since then, Ken has become a good friend to our family and a good friend to the Cersei Institute, which publishes uh, both this podcast and the journal that it goes with. Since 1993, Ken has been encouraging conversations about faith, faithfulness, and culture through his Mars Hill Audio, where they explore the various factors that have given modern Western culture its distinctive character. He also tries to describe what cultural life, its practices, beliefs, and artifacts might look like if it was the product of thoughtful Christian imagination. If you'd like to learn more about this bi-monthly audio journal, you can head over to marshillaudio.org. Again, that's marshillaudio.org. Ken was formerly the editor of This World, a journal of religion and public life, a quarterly journal whose editor-in-chief was Richard Newhouse. And prior to his tenure there, he was the executive editor at Eternity, an evangelical monthly magazine. For eight years, he was also a producer and editor for NPR, where he worked for a time as arts and humanities editor for the two news programs, Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Many of you might know him best for his service as a contributing editor at Christianity Today and for his published writings in All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes a book which was written in 1989, but feels as urgent and relevant as ever, even now in 2018. His writing has been in numerous periodicals, including Table Talk, Discipleship Journal, World, Crisis, First Things, The Washington Times, and many others. But I've been wanting to talk to Ken for a long time, so I jumped in a car, drove up from North Carolina, to visit him on his property in Virginia, to, to go to his studio. And we had a lengthy conversation. Half of this conversation will be featured in the newest issue of Forma, our journal. If you would like to get access to that, please go over to com and subscribe. Um, we do have a free issue each year, and this, this, this uh, interview will be featured in our free issue. And you can sign up for just that. But we hope you'll also consider signing up for the subscription, which we're launching this winter, that subscription will get you four issues of the journal as we're now going quarterly. So please check that out. Head over to formajournal.com. Again, that's formajournal.com to learn about how you can access this magazine. And like I said, this particular interview with uh, Ken Myers, the the second half of it has been edited and will be included in the print magazine, which is coming out in November. So make sure you have signed up for that if you'd like to hear the whole thing. Meanwhile, we're going to bring you a lengthy first portion of that interview. In this first portion, we talk primarily about how Ken got going with Mars Hill, what his early years looked like, and how he was motivated and inspired to begin the project that is Mars Hill Audio, the things that um, matter to him and the, and the things that he's trying to do and say through that journal. We talk a lot about his early years at NPR and how he came to be a world-class interviewer. It's certainly a intimidating thing to interview somebody who can interview as well as Ken Myers does. We began by discussing ken's very first interview which was miraculously with of all people johnny cash who was visiting uh, his university campus back in the 70s so with that i'm going to kick it over to my conversation with ken myers thanks for listening i hope you enjoy it and don't forget you can get the rest of this interview over at formerjournal.com.
0: yeah (laughs) you know my first interview i did on cassette tape you know, the the first interview that you conducted with someone? That I ever did in my life. Is that the Johnny Cash one? Oh, Johnny Cash. Well, I was, was going to ask you about that. Tape, yeah. I released it when he died. We we put a section of it on the journal when Cash died in not 90, <clears throat> no, 2000 and something. So you were 19 when you... When I did that interview. I was in college, yeah. It was my first first year in college radio, my junior year in college. Do you remember the station? It was, well, it was the, the college, yeah, it was the campus radio station. It was uh, WMUC, University of Maryland. It was a 10 watt, uh, just, you could only hear it on campus.
1: Did you, did you know even then that you wanted to, to do what you've no. been
0: doing? How did you stumble into interviewing Johnny Cash? Well, my uh, sophomore year, I was actually interested at the time—and this, this is ironic in light of what, I, what I'm doing, the kinds of arguments I'm making now—this <laughs> uh, is a beginning of a lot of Christian pop music that I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I'd been involved in church music, and this was a new mm. thing. And so I thought, well, I wonder if you could share this. And then I thought, well, I wonder if you could, you could do a radio program on the college station that would include commentary and interviews and— um, we did readings, dramatic poetry readings. We did dramatic readings of the Screw Tape letters. We huh. did. Uh, it was basically I'd been listening to this was 1972, and I'd been listening to NPR, and I thought you know you could do a variety of things, including some music. Hmm. So I put together a tape. I had a high school friend, who we we'd built a small recording studio in his basement. We sang in the Madrigal Group in high school. Hmm. And we used to do, we used to play around with recorded comedy and stuff. Yeah. Obnoxious, pretentious <laughs> stuff. And uh, <laughs> so, I, so I knew a little bit about tape editing and production. And so I put together a pilot for a show and presented it to the campus station. And uh, it was rejected. Okay. And this was your freshman year? Or your my sophomore, s- my year. sophomore, sophomore year. year. It was rejected by... Uh, then uh, program director, rightly so, do you think? Yeah, he said. He said, "You know nothing about radio." He <laughs> said. And uh, I still remember that guy. And um, was he kind about it? Was he giving he was you kind of, pointers? No, was... he was. No, no, he just wanted to get rid of me. And uh, he's, <laughs> and, and I, I thought, well, that's kind of true. And I want to learn how to do it, so I I actually signed up for a course in radio production. In the broadcasting department, they had a radio, TV, film department. And I ended up majoring in film studies because of that. Hmm. But but I got into it and I thought, well, I'd like to learn. And so I worked really hard, figured out what I was doing wrong, listened to a lot of stuff. Put together another pilot and presented it to this guy's successor the next year. Okay, It was right – it was the summer before my – my, I started my junior year, and okay. this guy approved it. The guy who approved it went on to become a really good friend and colleague who ended up eventually as the vice president of programming at NPR, Jay Kernis, his name was, and he he worked wow. at, he he went to NPR straight out of college. was he a prodigy uh, he really was and and a year later, he got me a job at NPR okay. so uh, so you went, you were at NPR. Quickly, 1975. Of- I graduated from college in '74. Okay, I produced that show for two years. I think two years, but then I started doing other production. I did a live readers' theater show in my senior year. Once every week with the drama department, we did a a play. Uh, we did. Uh, I did an arts magazine. I did two classical music annual, uh, weekly classical music shows, and uh, <clears throat> and. Did a and then my senior year uh, did a variety program that we called the Peak Show P I Q U E, which was uh, again uh, commentary. It was with four or five classmates, and it was arts arts stuff. It was reviews of new records, and I remember the first week we were on J.R.R. R. Tolkien died, and I did a mm. I did an obit to Tolkien. Mm. I think I did a John Ford obit, the Western director, yeah. that same. So I, I, I started doing tributes to great figures who were passing away, hmm. which is ironic because when I got my job at NPR, one of the, uh, particularly when I worked for Morning Edition, one of the things I had to do was produce these tributes. Everybody from Jimmy Durante to Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, wow. And because uh, I was arts and humanities editor right. for Morning Edition. So anyway, that yeah, that's how I got in. I got into radio when I But when I started doing that show in college, I did not think I was going to continue to do that. And even when I got my job at NPR, I didn't think I was ever going to be behind a microphone. I got a job at NPR editing other people's oh, really? interviews. Okay, yeah, I wasn't on the air uh, with my own work until uh, Morning Edition started in 79. And I was arts and humanities editor. I had to fill 18 minutes a day. Uh, with I had a staff, and I had lots of freelancers and reviewers and critics that were mm. doing work for me.
1: I'm guessing 18 minutes a day to the average person doesn't sound like a lot, but well, when it, takes, you fig- it takes work. Oh, yeah.
0: You figure the, the rule of thumb is it takes an hour for each minute. So that's 18 hours of production time mm. minimum. Uh, and I so I did interviews— Probably two or three times a week, I I had my own features that I was doing, but the rest of it was uh, reviewers and critics and other and other freelancers. Right. Okay, but let's go back to Johnny Cash. Yeah. So, so that's so, your first yeah. interview. You were nineteen yeah. years old. Yeah. And, and it was like on the very first show that I did, I think. Uh, it was called Agape. It was the name of this program. Right away. It was uh, on. A, you know, it's today. I don't think you could get a show like that on a secular university campus station but it was too uh, uh, too too sectarian yeah um and uh (laughs) but johnny cash this is 1973 he was just making a comeback and he he had done an event with campus crusade for christ that summer Hmm. somewhere in texas i think and so he'd been very explicit about his faith and he was in the midst of making a film called Gospel Road, which was a film on the life of Jesus. It was basically an extended music video with togas. Uh, <laughs> so, so how I would describe it today. So uh,
1: very, um, sounds like it could be right there in that yeah. like, catchy <laughs> it, 1970s oh, Christian yeah, yeah. subculture. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Combine it with, you know. Country music. So I I, I had a friend who somehow got me backstage. He was doing a concert. Cash was doing a concert at the Merryweather Post Pavilion up in Northern Virginia, outdoor big summer concert. And uh, I got backstage for about 10 or 15 minutes. June Carter was working on her hair, which is just astonishing. Yeah, that's like her hair, which is like a, a national treasure. Is that one of those things that stands out the most yeah. from that whole time? Yeah. Her, June, yeah. Her in the June corner. She was in the other corner of the trailer. We were in a dressing room. And, what was uh, he like to interview? Very uh very kind and uh he was uh the, the most astonishing thing that happened. I asked him towards the end of the interview if there was any song. I was looking for a music cue, you know, I figured. Right. You know, I would I would end the interview when it went on the air with playing one of his songs. So, I asked him if even was... then, thinking about the production, absolutely, yeah, I asked him what <laughs> is there a song that expresses your personal faith? He said, "Well, Ken, there's a song we're we're working on this film right now, and he reaches <laughs> over and picks up his guitar, oh really, Wow! and he starts playing it, and he sings it and wow, and uh it was i you know I had a cassette tape recorder, a pretty good quality cassette, and I had a electro voice six thirty five a microphone, which was kind of a standard broadcast mic. And I didn't know where to hold the mic to make sure I was getting <laughs> yeah. him. and yeah, him. yeah. I did pretty well, though. So, yeah, that was my first, the very first interview. You still have this. I have uh, an edited version. You of still it. have the... Um, I don't think I have the original cassette. Uh, I think I have, I dubbed it to reel-to-reel. I may still have the reel-to-reel around here somewhere. How much, how much of it did you end up including? And did you include the song in what... One of the oh, yeah, era? yeah. I mean, how song. can you leave that out? Well, and then, and then when we, we released it on the Marshall Audio Journal when he died mm-hmm. and and I kind of told the story that I just told you okay. and and then and then included the included the song I I I um uh, I prettied it up a little bit with a little bit of reverb but okay. uh, but it was yeah it's really kind of astonishing
1: did, did June Carter Cash interact with you at all No no You just
0: saw her there yeah, She was there getting yeah. ready for their performance But anyway it, I got started uh I mean I was interested in serious content but i was also interested in kind of christian celebrities that's what yeah. he was. I, was I wasn't interviewing him he did discuss es uh he did discuss uh, liter- uh not liter- he did discuss um eucharistic theology a little bit because it was huh. a song about the last supper interesting and uh, did he know what he was talking about uh it- surprisingly probably more than a lot of christians (laughs) like you could uh, tell he he was being thoughtful yeah yeah. it's pretty serious about it yeah and uh anyway but i yeah it took a long time i mean i at that time i saw this program mainly as a way of providing what i later learned to call thanks to peter Berger a plausibility structure Hmm. Berger in his idea of in his sociology of knowledge talks about how we have institutional phenomena uh around us that lend plausibility to our belief system. They don't make it more credible, but they hmm. they 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 make it plausible. That is they they render it uh likely to possibly be true. Hmm. And um like and, you can
1: imagine uh, it, it enters
0: your imagination yeah. as a yeah, I mean, so, so the example, I think Peter Berger himself uses this that Mormonism is more plausible in Salt Lake City than it is in Manhattan. It's no more credible, he would say. Uh, that is, when you analyze the yeah. ideas abstractly. But when you're, because of the fact that we are socially embedded beings, and, uh, and what is plausible is, is sustained to some extent by the kinds of social institutions around us and the way we walk through everyday life and uh i didn't know that theory at the time but i did think that um uh, if people's experience of media was dominated by highly secularized media and never any any expression of thoughtful christian faith that that was that was harmful to that that made it made it harder to hold on to your faith uh i i think i had that sense at the time I, and I had a lot of friends in the arts who had grown up in Christian families and were abandoning their faith. Hmm. And I thought it was partly because of the fact that in the world they live in, there aren't any believers or there, there are very few believers. And so... The, in the uh, arts world. In the, the arts, arts world. Participating yeah, yeah. So I thought, this is, you know, 72, uh, Francis Schaeffer is doing a lot of work and... F- again my interest in the arts there were almost no books being published that took say film seriously i knew of like one or two books that would deal with film from a christian perspective uh and so i mm. i think at the time i thought well if i'm going to get involved in media then part of that task is is in a sense merely symbolic it's it's there there is an analytic part of it but mm. but uh it's more than just the analysis. It's actually the the, the appeal to the imagination that uh, you know. Look, look at uh, the, these are people seriously wrestling with ideas, or 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 concerned with artistic beauty and achievement. Mm. So I think that early on, uh, I, I did have that sense. It, it, I didn't have the theoretical explanation for it.
1: Yeah, and so so you you think that was probably. What was behind the things that you were pursuing at the station in well, those early uh, years?
0: And uh, for that show, uh, I mean, for that show, definitely. Uh, then uh, the other shows I was working on, the other productions I was working on, was um, uh, trying to be a. I mean, I, I'd been, I'd read enough Schaefer and C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers to know that, to know something about what representing a Christian worldview involved. Right. And and uh, so I knew that there were there were contestable points of view in, in in the world of arts and literature and, and uh felt uh that i that m- that maybe what my vocation was was to to represent the that point of view in in that setting hmm. and when i went to work at npr i definitely had that sense i got the job at npr a year after graduating yeah. and i definitely had the sense of i, I saw then people who uh, who were representing views of beauty and creativity that were post-Christian. And I thought, well, how can I <laughs> covertly <laughs> challenge
1: that? So you, you felt—so you spent, what, the first five years then as just an editor and a producer, well, and then you became, you went on the other side of the microphone? Yeah,
0: actually, uh, so I was there for like two and a half years, and I, I took— Two and a half years off to go to seminary. But okay. I did freelance work while I was Okay. So I I was doing freelance. Okay. I was doing I was doing stuff on the air. Actually, ironically, it wasn't until I left and was working as a freelance producer while I was in seminary. Uh and then went back in seventy nine when Morning Edition went on the air. And then uh I, I again I th- I didn't realize how much on air work I'd do, but um hmm. At that point, the guy who'd gotten me my job, Jake Ernest, the same guy who put me on the air in college, he was then the producer Morning Edition also. He's the one who hired me back at NPR. And he said, look, if you want to do interviews to fill those slots, go ahead and do it. So I started doing – in fact, the first, first week I was there, I think I had to do uh, – <laughs> an important figure in the art and museum world died and – she had the temerity to die late in the day, which means I had to put together a report like late at night mm-hmm. to have something on the next morning. So suddenly I'm sitting in the studio at like 11 o'clock at night recording a, uh, an obit for this person and, uh, and then did a lot of interviews interviewed uh, mostly writers, P.D. James, Frederick Forsyth, mm-hmm. Robert Ludlum. Huh. I, I I love mystery novels and thrillers. So I, I would oh, I'm would. going to come back to that
1: then. <laughs> did you know early on that you were good at interviewing people? Did you, did it feel natural to you? Did Because obviously your friend who was there, if you hadn't been in, yeah. on this side of the, or the other side of the mic, you probably were.
0: I don't know. I mean, I didn't think about seen it. Something. Yeah. I didn't think about it. I mean, I did. I, I, I don't think I, I, I never felt very self-conscious about it. Uh you just like talking to people? Well, I like talking to people. It is it is a form of performance, though. And I'd i right. done music performance. Okay. You know, from the time I was in high school, I was singing in front of big audiences, uh, classical music.
1: So you were used to having to prepare to perform. Yeah. Having yeah. to be aware of how people are hearing you. Yeah,
0: yeah. And how to use my voice. Right. And uh, so that's part of it. And then... Um, it's funny because I just got emailed today from somebody who wants advice about how to do good interviews. And, uh, I'm tempted to say, yeah, I should have asked that before we, just I'm tempted to say, start doing it when you're 19. This is a little snarky, yeah. yeah, but, but, uh, uh, it helps. I mean, I think that the best interviews that, well, the kind, the reason I was attracted to NPR is because the interviews were con were good conversations. They weren't interrogations or they weren't designed to, to trick somebody into you know they weren't a, a, a kind of a one-upsmanship game which is a, what a lot of talk radio is yeah
1: did were you did you were you able to do it were you could they could be extended as opposed to just trying to get sound bites. For oh yeah, or?
0: well, I, I mean, I remember when I interviewed a PD James. I think it was an hour long interview. Oh wow, yeah. Typically, the NPR interviews I was doing were half hours typically, but you'd end up with five minutes of tape, of on the that you'd end up with. And uh, but but I think for PD James, I think I talked to her for an hour, hmm. but again, it was still only a, a ten minute feature, that came out of it.
1: Right, right. Did so, but you said you were studying film in college. Yeah. So the radio was that – that was, you took a course, but that was kind of a side – Yeah, and I did some day. other
0: radio production courses and, and some other broadcast history courses. But most of my work was film theory and criticism, most of my coursework. And I actually thought – I actually thought I might work in film as a critic or teaching or uh, or possibly production. I had a couple of friends who ended up in Hollywood hmm. and uh, – They make it? Yeah, one, one who did – one who worked behind the scenes in the technical side and had a very successful career still working uh, in special effects and other things. And one friend who I met later who was one of the story editors for Star Trek The Next Generation, oh, right. Star Trek Voyager, and, and uh, a couple of other lesser well-known shows. And uh, actually, there was a time before I started Mars Hill that I, I toyed again with the idea of trying to do screenwriting. Hmm. For about thirty minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and then you sat down. You didn't have an idea. Well, I realized I you couldn't have plenty write of dialogue. Ideas? I, okay, yeah. Ironically, I mean, I think I know how to have dialogue, but I don't know how to write it. I mean, hmm. I think I know how to have a good conversation, but I, I, I'm too I'm too uh, pedantic, or too I I, I want to make a point, hmm. and, and you wanted I, to go somewhere. I wanted to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and I, I knew that I, that wasn't going to work.
1: But, so, uh, so you said you were. You didn't. You didn't find any books that were dealing seriously with film from a faith-based yeah, perspective. So, what right. were you reading? Like, what motivated that love, or or fed that love of film? Well, because I imagine that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that studying film in college in the early '70s maybe it was a little different of an concept than it would have been in 2018. Oh yeah.
0: Well, first of all, I, I was really interested in. Well, I I'd been I'd been involved in music performance from the time I was in high school, uh classical music principally. And I I I realized before I even finished high school that the world of the arts. And, and and I got interested. I was reading uh C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers and and I I think I read Tolkien in high school. I know I did in college. And it dawned on me between high school and college that um the world of the arts had become, and, and part of this, reading Francis Schaeffer, hmm. the world of the arts had become a, a locus of, of uh, hostility or indifference hmm. to Christianity. And I'd, all, I'd always had a kind of a, an interest in apologetics. That may have been because I had three uncles who were missionaries and uh, hmm. so I gr- grew up with the idea of it, where evangelism and apologetics were really important. And so I was again interested in the question of uh, before I had the vocabulary why why is the gospel implausible to modern men and women? What makes it implausible and uh, there was a time when I thought it was just well, it's just because of the way it's being presented it's being presented badly mm-hmm. and i didn't re- and then reading reading Schaefer and others, I realized that there were there were uh, cu- large cultural settings, large cultural um, patterns that, uh, that served to make the gospel implausible.
1: Unconscious. Type Unconsciously. That we adapt yeah. That, that, that people couldn't imagine that, that it was true yeah.
0: before they even actually analyze it. They just mm. couldn't imagine that it was true. And you were really, you were thinking about this when you were
1: in college. Even. Yeah,
0: definitely. And, uh, and I was also interested in the argument that Schaeffer makes that, um, that the work done by artists and philosophers trickles down into popular culture, that cult- the cultural experience people have uh, is uh, kind of downstream from intellectual work that had been done often generations before. There's actually a passage, J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary, uh, that where I m- went to seminary, Machen wrote, gave a talk i think in 1918 or so i mean a very early 20th century and i think it was reprinted as christianity and culture in which he talks about the importance of apologists understanding the the large thought patterns that dominated modern culture hmm. and and that uh he said if we, we can do evangelism and not evangelize at that level but We'll win a few stragglers here and there, but mm. but our work's going to be harder and harder. the The more we ignore the world of philosophy and culture, the 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 more work we're going to have to do to uh, persuade people the truth of the gospel. And so that I read that I know in college, and uh,
1: and so this how did this feed into to. Your film studies and your desire to to pursue that well
0: in film. So I, so so in nineteen seventies, early seventies, all the critics I was reading were Marxists. Oh yeah, and I'm thinking, what difference would it make? What would a Christian theory of film? That's one thing I was thinking about. So so, what, who what were you it, reading? That
1: you, oh, I can't, that you were trying to. I mean, well, not I mean, the, some, not some, that some, you have to throw anyone under the bus, yeah. but.
0: I mean, some of the people. I mean, I was reading early early Russian critics. Uh, Pudovkin, uh, I can't remember hmm. all their names now. Yeah. But then at the time, there were, uh, well, people like Jean-Luc Godard, who was yeah. the director also.
1: Right. The French New Wave. Yeah,
0: French yeah. New Wave. And and But a lot of the theorists, not all of them, but a lot of, and, and my professor, the guy I was studying with, who, who was the best professor I had, was very sympathetic to Marxism. Uh, I mean, this was the typical English department stuff in the 70s yeah and uh so i rem- i remember thinking, well, what difference would it make if you thought about film as a christian, and the best I could come up with at the <laughs> my teenage brain at the time was uh that we take the the and this is it's interesting in retrospect because this is the beginning of my antipathy to to Gnosticism hmm. because I thought what film does uniquely as an art form is convey a sense of life in space and time Hmm. Uh, embodied experience in space and time it does that uniquely Uh, you can suggest some of that in literary forms or other art forms but i think film captures it most most dramatically so what does it mean to be a being inhabiting space and time and how do we how how do we capture and convey the sense of its meaningfulness and and goodness in Hmm. some sense and um, so I wanted to focus on, let's call it a, a humanistic ethic or a humanistic aesthetic rather than a political aesthetic. Because a lot of the Marxists, obviously, they're looking at film as a kind of a, a dialectical thesis, antithesis, synthesis, theories. I mean, those are some of the theories.
1: Were but, you looking at the films that were coming out, you know, pre, in you know, the 60s, the 50s and the 60s and then the early 70s and saying that they were – they were doing that as well as what the or were there...
0: well to some extent. Although I, you know, I, I was at that point. I was, I was just trying to figure out how they were doing what they were doing. I, I, I don't know. That, yeah, mean, yeah, technically, yeah. and and uh, and and um, and what kind of aesthetic effects were there? I was looking at at also looking at what kind of narrative, what kind of stories are they, are, are being told. Uh, but but I was I did so anyway, and all this I was thinking well. There need to be Christians attending to these things. Um, yeah. And I thought—so I thought I might end up doing work in in film theory or criticism. And uh, and my first job out of college, actually, was uh, working in a government agency that distributed media. And I took it partly because I needed a job, but partly because I, w- I was working with film laboratories regularly. and mm-hmm. I, And I knew that if I was going to get in film production— the more I knew about the, the the technical side of lab work, that was a good thing to do it. So I did. You uh, like that? Um, it was okay, but uh, <laughs> there was no ideas. No, there weren't. I, I, but again, at that time, I realized that you had to do the craft. You have to. Yeah. You have to know all of the aspects of the craft. But I was glad when I found there was an opening at NPR, and uh, the work I'd done in college. <laughs> for the particularly the work I'd done for that arts magazine thing we did my senior year uh I put a tape together from that that's what got me the job at at NPR NPR, yeah
1: what films were you watching at the time that you were that you loved I mean what was the well
0: I took a Hitchcock course okay I took a course where we watched almost every one of Hitchcock's films uh I some of those still hold up oh yeah absolutely goodness north by northwest can't beat it Hmm. rear window um and I, was, I just saw Alan Jacobs wrote a piece recently about um, Touch of Evil, one of Orson yeah. Welles's films. And that was one of my favorites. I liked Welles' – It's the Charlton Heston one? Yeah. so yeah. one more. yeah. And, and uh, yeah, he just wrote a piece about that. And um, and I, I, some of the other New Wave directors, Eric Romer – in fact, mm-hmm. I have my Netflix queue. There's a Romer film I haven't seen coming in tomorrow, I think, so on DVD. Uh, but – I got a job my senior year in college. I got a part-time job working at a, a, a public library that had a film collection, 16-millimeter film. Oh, wow. Which at the, this is pre-VCR. So right. if you wanted to watch an old film, you had to get it on 16-millimeter. And I found for 100 bucks a third-hand 16-millimeter projector that I set wow. up in my parents' basement. And I was working huh. for $1.60 an hour repairing 16-millimeter prints. That had sprocket damage, <laughs> huh. and uh, and a- at the end of the day, any film that hadn't been checked out, and they had a really good collection of classic cinema, European and uh, American, hmm. and any film that was available, I could take home with me. So I was That's seeing a fine my, for that. For oh those yeah, days. Yeah. Film, oh, yeah. there's no
1: film struck in 1970. Oh
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So and, and nobody, yeah. It was it was totally unique. In fact, my because I had that projector, I used to host film parties for friends, even when I graduated then. Hmm. And then, uh, and when I was working for NPR, we used to get together a bunch of friends from our uh, church. I we went to a fairly large church. That's where I met my wife at a Hitchcock film, actually. <laughs> She's still <laughs> at a, a screening. <laughs> well, it was The Lady Vanishes, uh. oddly enough.
1: <laughs> Did you, so so you're at NPR. It's 1979 when Morning Edition?
0: Yeah, Morning Editions and, and, uh, I was the only Christian that, that I knew of who was doing on-air work.
1: Do you, do, you, do you believe or did you know at the time that that was purposeful?
0: Uh, I don't think it was purposeful. I just don't think there were many Christians who applied for the job. People used to complain about media bias. Why do these institutions hire so many liberals? And, well, it's because no conservatives ever applied for the job. <laughs> was, uh, Has that changed? I don't know. I don't know if it's changed you haven't been there. there. Yeah. yeah. I um I I uh I don't think it was purposeful. And but the irony is everybody knew I'd gone to seminary. They knew I I knew a lot of the people there from when I'd been there before because 'cause okay. I'd only been gone for two and a half years, came back. So I became the de facto religion reporter. So anytime there was a <laughs> a really important story. So the day that John Paul II was shot, they put me on the air live because oh, I was wow. the only one who could interview these Vatican officials and intelligently knew something about the papacy. And so huh. I was, and and, wow. and and they would often ask my advice about how to cover stories, religion stories. And uh, I would, you know, help them, give them ideas about who to interview and how to make sure the yeah. piece wasn't. And they realized that they were often accused of anti-Christian bias, so they wanted to avoid that, and they would ask me to help them. I remember giving a lecture about hmm. the Trinity to to the whole All Things Considered staff, because they had, really? they had uh, done something with a Unitarian church. They'd done a, a, sat, a satirical piece with a Unitarian church choir the w- week after Easter, and I won't go into the details, but <laughs> there were, they got a lot of angry mail from Christians who— were offended by it. And I had to explain why, first of all, the content was offensive, but secondly, the fact that it was done by Unitarians made it doubly offensive, the week after Easter. So I had to explain the Trinity and the resurrection and Unitarianism. And and I was asked to do this by the producer of the show, which was really remarkable at the time. I don't know that today, that might happen today. I don't know. So, but you ended up leaving. I've read that you... I think I've read it, Put that you were disillusioned with it. Well, no, I I got laid off. Okay. I, I, I left morning edition to go. I was, I was offered a job as editor of a five hour arts magazine show. It was a weekly show uh, Sunday afternoons. And it was three and a half hours of classical music performance live on tape, as we used to say. And, uh, and then an hour and a half of, of arts reporting. And I was the editor of all the arts reporting. So I was, uh, and it was a, multi-million dollar budget. Um, I had a staff of 35. The the show had a staff of 35 people. And I was basically in charge of all the spoken word content. They had a producer who was responsible for all the concert stuff. Hmm. And uh, we had just gotten underway and were building momentum when NPR had this huge budget crisis and our show was canceled. And I was offered a position in an administrative role, recycling uh, radio programs from the, the BBC and Radio Nederland and Radio Deutsche Welle and other European. And I said, that was, it would be too depressing. So I, I was, I, I said, go ahead and lay me off too. So I was unemployed for six months. So, so what did uh, you, did that lead to the work that you're doing now during that time? Indirectly. Yeah. And in fact that I had no idea what, what to do next. And, um, A friend I had met when I was in seminary, who lived in Philadelphia, who was working at Eternity Magazine, which was an evangelical Mm -hmm. monthly magazine, said they they had an opening. The executive editor job was open, and they were Mm -hmm. interested in hiring somebody with secular journalistic experience and theological training. So I applied for the job, and I turned it down the first time because I thought NPR was like the pinnacle. of I mean, the gold standard. <laughs> you <really have> to, <laughs> and then I, it's like going to work with a mimeograph machine in the church basement by comparison. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh. I, it would have just been too depressing to take the job. But then I ran out of unemployment benefits. And <laughs> you got forced into it. And I thought, yeah, it wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, took a huge pay cut from what I'd been making at NPR. My wife and I had lived in Philadelphia before and didn't like it that much the first time. So she agreed to move back with me. So is this the 80s now? This is 84. I started there in 84. And is that is – that, that led you down to Virginia? Well, so so that was – yeah, we moved to Philadelphia. And the interesting thing is I talked to some friends about whether or not I should take this job. They said, well, you'll learn a new medium. That's a good thing. Because the, what the magazine was doing at the time was so banal and uninteresting. And it, it was basically um, – kind of saccharine piety, I thought. Mm. I mean, they occasionally publish some good articles, but just the, the, the style of it was so... Uh, like from a different d- era in it? In a way, yeah. But also it just wasn't culturally engaged. Right. Although some of the people at the time, some people thought it was culturally engaged because they would talk about social issues every now and then. And But then, uh, so so actually... Mm. But I thought, well, I'll do it. I just kind of hold my nose and do it. Did you did you have a a fully formed
1: definition of what it would should mean to for Christians to be culturally engaged at the time? No,
0: I, and and I I I didn't even have that when I started Mars Hill. I mean, I think. But but the interesting thing was. I'd been doing that job for a, th- a few months when my boss took me to lunch and he said, "Well, he said I didn't tell you this when I hired you, but one of the reasons we wanted to hire you was because we think the magazine needs to be re- restructured and editorially re- rebranded, refocused. We'd like you to come up with a plan because we feel like we're treading water and we're losing subscribers. So I, he gave me a couple months to put together a plan, and I basically said, rather than being a uh, a magazine that appeals to evangelicals. As a kind of general interest magazine, which would include articles about cultural phenomena, but also articles about which Bible translation is best for teenagers and how to survive as a preacher's wife or, you know, all all sorts of things that happen within the evangelical subculture. That's what the magazine was doing at the time. And it had a lot of competition. There were a lot more evangelical magazines. Christianity Today was the biggest competitor, but there were a lot of others at the time. I said, look, I said— There are a lot of younger Christians in particular who have read Francis Schaeffer, read other apologists, realize that it's important for Christians to be more culturally attentive, culturally engaged. But there isn't isn't a Christian magazine that's doing that. There isn't an evangelical magazine that's doing that. Um, And I made the argument that having an ongoing periodical that would focus attention on cultural issues was actually more important than having books because books are focused and they're they're not part of the regular diet of things. Mm. If you could have a monthly magazine and the model I used was Harper's or Atlantic Monthly. And I said we need a Christian Harper's or Atlantic Monthly.
1: So it came out it came out once a month. Yeah, it was
0: a monthly magazine. Did
1: you have to I mean there's a you talking about the trade of yeah. the craftsmanship oh, yeah. of film. There's a whole oh, yeah. craftsmanship well, I, I, behind would, yeah. creating a magazine. It
0: was a huge I mean it was uh, I spent a lot of time reading books, reading articles. I went to a couple of workshops, just learning about now I, I had some some visual experience because of my film background but but uh, you know typesetting, all right. that uh, layout, all that stuff I had to learn. Now I had a staff who helped to some extent, but I replaced I, they didn't have a full-time art director. The first thing I said, if we're going to do this, I need a full-time art director. And somebody who really has a good eye, and and uh, so anyway, so they let me, they approved my plan, without knowing what in the world I was talking about. As it happened, <laughs> I didn't realize at the time, oh. and it was exciting. And and what what's interesting so to how, me? How old were you at this time? So uh, I I just turned thirty. I was okay. thirty-one, and uh, I w- I'd been so depressed from losing my job at NPR, and then I thought this is why God. This is what God has for mm. me. This this is this is my job. So um, I found a lot of new writers. I recruited. And we started. We totally refocused the magazine, changed the design of it, changed the look of it. Uh, and about a year after that, there was a board meeting at which uh, the board told me they asked me to come in. and to, They say we don't like what you're doing. We don't. <laughs> we don't understand why you're doing this. And it turned out, unbeknownst to me, that. When I had made my pitch, when I talked about being more culturally engaged and dealing with cultural issues more, what they thought I realized was they thought I would use cultural phenomena, headline stuff, trends, as object lessons to make an essentially spiritualized point. So to use current events to, 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 to basically give us... More insight into the yeah. letter to the Hebrews, or hmm. or uh, the, the doctrine of justification, or something. Whereas I wanted to use theologically informed worldview to, to to engage culture as culture. That's how I eventually came to describe it. They wanted to use culture as object lessons for an essentially theological point. Hmm. So, for instance, they said there aren't any there aren't enough Bible verses. I said I said it's saturated with biblical theology. These articles. They're, they're speaking from a, a biblical point of view. They're not analyzing the scripture. And uh, hmm. so anyway, that. So, so that's a year into your i have been there almost two years because, okay. yeah, from, from I'd been there almost two years because by the time they asked me to do this, by the time we actually started doing it, it had been almost a year. So we're, I'm almost two years into this. And then I realized, they said, we want you to go back to something like what the magazine was. So I thought about it and I said I don't think I can do that. It would be too depressing. I've already, <laughs> I already lost one job recently. Yeah. So so I talked to them, I talked to my boss uh, and the director of the uh, the chairman of the board and and I realized they they just weren't going to understand what I was trying to do. So I just I gave notice. I found a way to make a living doing some consulting and some other things and and decided, I'm going to start a new magazine. That was 86. And, uh,
1: so you're 32, 33, yeah, early 30s. You have
0: 33. Two little kids. and uh, But I found, a, I, I signed a contract to do some consulting work that was enough for us to live on. Uh, enough for us to live on by moving to a, a, a place where the cost of living was less. That's when we moved to the country.
1: So you moved from Philadelphia to, 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 the r- country, to rural, rural Virginia.
0: Virginia. Yeah a county with no stoplights or fast food or ATMs at the time. And I started (laughs) trying to figure out how to, how to raise money to, uh, to start my own magazine. And uh, I'm glad I didn't, wasn't successful because who knew that how hard print publishing was going to become because of the internet. This is, beautiful. and about six years into that process, I'm still trying to figure it out. There was a, there was a, a period of about three months where I had four people from different spheres of my experience say to me, "Have you have thought about getting back into audio, Christians and non-Christians who were saying this to me, and when the fourth one said it, I thought, maybe I should think about getting back into audio. So by now it's the early 90s? Yeah, 91. I had been noticing that the books on tape market had really been skyrocketing. The audio book market was taking off because of the popularity, you know, everybody had a Walkman at the time. It's still cassettes. Yeah. Uh, some some portable CD players, but more and more people listening to audiobooks. And, and, and it was actually uh, when I saw that s- somebody had produced uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time as an audio magazine. I thought you could do some serious stuff with audio. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I had meanwhile started a couple of desktop publishing newsletters. I bought a laser printer, and I, w- I, f- I found a bunch of people to subscribe. It didn't even pay for itself. I had maybe 400 people getting a newsletter, which was kind of, again, trying to continue what I'd started at Eternity yeah. just through writing and, and a few interviews. But then I realized when I started thinking about audio, I thought, well, I don't have, I don't have a budget. I can't pay people to write for me. But if I interviewed that guy who just wrote this recent book, I wouldn't have to pay him. I could get free content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and, uh, He wants to promote his yeah, thing. Yeah, he
0: wants to promote his yeah. thing. I want content. So then I started playing around with the idea of, a, of, a, of an audio magazine. Originally, though, I was still thinking about radio. I actually put together a proposal for a program that was tentatively called Modern Times, a half-hour weekly show. It would be an arts and humanities program. Distributed, in my thinking, on NPR member stations, but a, a covertly Christian uh, program. Hmm. Uh, You know, people were complaining about media bias, so I went to 25 foundations and said, "Would you underwrite?" I I put together a proposal. I said, "You know, there are all these programs with a liberal point of view that you're upset about. Uh, I think I could get a show carried on public." Radio stations that had a, an implicitly Christian or implicitly culturally conservative viewpoint, and uh, I realized then that conservatives are more willing to underwrite complaining about media bias. <laughs> 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 uh, it's like you know, it's they don't like, have a solution. Uh, yeah, then actually, then actually, producing something that was that was biased in their favor. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's a long. I, I think the main – a part of it is conservatism in America is much too focused on politics. The irony, when I was at NPR, my conservative friends inside the Beltway working in D.C., all they could talk about was politics. Hmm. All my liberal friends were interested in the arts. Hmm. And I thought, wait a minute. Marxism is supposed to be reductionist and reduce everything to politics. And yet my liberal, more left-wing – my left-wing friends are really interested in Literature and film and music. My conservative friends, all they can talk about is free market economics. Uh, all, all they can talk about <laughs> is tax policy. They're uh, driven by fear, you think? I don't know. I was just reading an article before you got here by, by a conservative intellectual talking about how—and I've read other articles over the years that that, uh, that conservatism as a movement— tended to coalesce around people who were making arguments, defensive uh, political arguments. That's one reason. For Christians, I think a lot of mm. Christians falsely assume, and this is something James Hunter has been carping at for decades, they falsely assume that that culture is a product of politics rather than politics being a— because of the fact that things like uh, the Supreme Court decision to— Remove prayer in schools in the sixties, or Roe v. Wade. Okay, Roe v. Wade happens. Christians are offended. They think we have to protect the unborn. So what we need is a political campaign. Yeah.
1: What
0: what's what's not being attended to from nineteen seventy three on is what are the cultural conditions that make abortion a plausible solution? It goes back for to the, yeah.
1: the unconscious. Yeah. Are, yeah. The stuff you why, talk about. Why in book. why
0: is abortion imaginable? Yeah. What in the experience? What in the cultural experience? Of people makes this a plausible good, makes it not seen as actually a good thing, not just mm-hmm. a, a, a a tragic necessity. Uh, and so, so again, <laughs> yeah. so they 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 see their opponents, they think their opponents are political because that's what's that's what's visible. Mm. Um, but I, conservatives aren't alone in this. But I think conservatives. For whatever reason, the conservative movement in America, I mean, look at how National National Review, when it was founded by Buckley in the 50s, is founded as a conservative voice. And it quickly became, even though Russell Kirk, who was much more interested in the arts and humanities than politics, mm-hmm. Kirk doesn't write a lot about politics. Kirk knew that politics was downstream from culture uh, and philosophy, but... Uh, he, and he—he's seen as a kind of significant figure in the in the in the revival of mid twentieth century conservatism as a respectable movement, but pretty quickly it becomes all about politics. Is um, is what you're saying part of what's motivated
1: your interest in things like classical education? The idea of the cultural conditions, yeah. oh, because yeah. most the in a Christian school, the age-old debate is if you just. Send them to a Christian school, at least they're going to learn the right content, right? But the right. content isn't the whole right. story of what yeah. well, transforms yeah. well, the mind.
0: Well, well, exactly. So so it, when I first saw—I I read uh, Dorothy L. Sayers' Lost Tools of Learning when I was in college. Uh, I remember, in fact, sitting in a friend's basement discussing it with a few friends. It had just been reprinted by National mm-hmm. Review, interestingly. Hmm. And uh, so that was the first time I thought about the methods of pedagogy, of, of how the method of education, the structure of education, rather than just what's being taught. Yeah. But and, – and I realized that um, my study in film theory and criticism, I realized that much of what is communicated is communicated by the form of things, not just by words. So I, I early on uh, – you know, and, and reading communications theorists like, like uh, McLuhan and others – Postman, were you Yeah, I love Well, I later. eventually did. Yeah, I eventually Postmans did. Later. Yeah, but but yeah, but yeah. So I I early on realized that that the bulk of what happens to shape what we believe, what we can affirm, happens not through propositional content but through the form of things. Hmm. Uh, and and that was that was reinforced even in my uh, seminary education. I remember uh, a course in hermeneutics where we were warned about what my Professor called the kernel and husk fallacy, and he said, he "said So you're reading something in the Psalms or Proverbs or wisdom literature somewhere, and it's got all this metaphor, all this imagery. Don't make the mistake of trying to come up with an abstraction that the imagery refers to, hmm. and then eliminate the imagery, because God inspired the imagery. God inspired hmm. the imagery to work on your imagination, so that you would understand what the truth was. So that the truth wasn't concealed." by the imagery, or it wasn't merely uh, conveyed by the imagery. The truth was in the imagery somehow, mm. and you just, you live with it. You live with the imagery. Mm. Uh, it doesn't need to correlate one-to-one
1: with some propositional statement. It,
0: it may at some point, yeah, but but yeah, it certainly doesn't need to correlate one-to-one, and it, it's doubtful that it will correlate one-to-one. So uh, right. that was the beginning of... of uh, this is true of liter- teaching literature absolutely. as well. Yeah, Absolutely. And, uh, and then I read Polanyi, uh, I started reading and, and hearing lectures about Michael Polanyi's understanding of knowledge, personal knowledge. I didn't understand a lot that he was saying, but I realized again that, that, uh, he he had a phrase, we know more than we can tell that, that, that knowledge comes to us indirectly very often, uh. And again, because of my experience in the arts, I knew that yeah, that's that is definitely the case. That and so uh, so I was early on rejecting a kind of enlightenment understanding of rationality without realizing <laughs> that's what I was right. doing. And so when I saw what uh, what the classical school movement was starting to do, I realized well that's that that's an encouraging thing. I I wasn't quite sure how it would mature, and. Early on, twenty some years ago, you know, as I'm watching it, I was still a little bit nervous, and yeah. and, and and to be honest, I was nervous that it was attracting uh, some people who were just kind of aesthetes, and uh, they were just interested in in the classics. Oh yeah, and they just wanted to promote that, but but there wasn't a kind of a, both theologically and philosophically based understanding of how you, well. I don't know how many of them had read Peeper, and uh, for instance, uh, the Leisure, of the Basic. I don't know how many culture. of them still have, <laughs> and, and and understood the theological. What, right. What's interesting about Peeper? There's a lot of subterranean theology there that a lot of people don't realize, and that's what I, over time. I, I, of course, it's taken me a long time to figure all this out too.
1: So it strikes me though that the the classical school movement in the early nineties, which kind of yeah. begins kind of to start yeah. in full force in the early nineties, yeah. yeah that's kicking off, shall we say, around the same time you're kicking off yeah, the yeah. journal.
0: Well, ironically, uh, uh, yeah, I started the journal in 93 and, uh, that book you have, the original edition of All God's Children, Blue Suede Shoes was in the same series that Doug Wilson's Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning was. Okay. And, and, and that's old Marvin Alasky. Was it was, there? yeah. Marvin edited, Marvin Alasky edited that series. And, uh, um so the book well the book came out in 89 right came out in 89 so how did, that's before marcelo so i was they... i was just starting to think well i was that's when i was trying to start a new magazine okay and i was actually asked by marvin who I, who had written for me at eternity okay marvin was huh. one of my discoveries at eternity magazine and and uh as i was looking for new writers and uh that's he, a claim to fame, <laughs> I guess. He's still going. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I, he had he had written some other things, but I think, right. I think, I don't know how how many places he had a as po- a kind of popular audience. Yeah. I think he'd written more academic stuff. Right, that. right. So I I basically did that because I thought, well, <clears throat> I thought it was. I, I wrote that actually uh, as a as. <laughs> In my head, it was a sequel to Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Really? Okay. Because when I was at Eternity magazine, that's when uh, the idea of entertainment evangelism and marketing the church and basically exploiting the entertainment culture. that I mean, evangelicals have always done that, but it went into overdrive in in the early 80s. Mm. It went into overdrive, I think, because people were more and more nervous about losing market share, to put it crassly. And they thought, well, if, if we can emulate, you know, people are driven by entertainment culture. And if we can just emulate and tie into people through that, rather than realizing that it's a bad thing that people are driven yeah, by entertainment right. culture. That's exactly what Postman was saying was, this is not a good thing. Yeah. And for the church to give its blessing to this and to basically say, we're going to hitch the wagon of the gospel to these dangerous horses seemed to me absolutely wrong. It wasn't just approximately wrong. It was, it was, it was perfectly wrong. And and so I was actually in, in the magazine in 84 and 85, I was writing, trying to challenge that gently. But that was, you know, that was when, uh, and, and Bill Hybels comes along and Willow Creek, and they're basically saying, we have to just re Reinvent what it means to do church, for instance, uh, and we do it guided, right. guided by commercial and entertainment principles, and uh, which I again a business. It's a, a business, yeah, 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 yeah. The way, yeah, yeah. even exactly.
1: the way churches are structured, leadership right. wise,
0: right. So basically, let's learn from Disney or let's learn from uh, Coca Cola how to, how to do discipleship.
1: You talk in the book about how um, the early church, for example was less concerned with infiltrating culture as yeah. much as it was creating new culture. Yeah. I'm not drawing okay. from the okay. same yeah. dirty water, yeah. but digging Being a new culture. well.
0: Yeah, and I say that in the 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 introduction, the introduction. to the new edition, I, I don't think I realized that as well when I wrote the book originally, but then they asked me several years ago to write a new introduction, and so I wrote it then. And that's what I focused on then. Although I did I did talk in, in the original te- uh, manuscript about um, – the kinds of challenges the early church faced, but I did, yeah. I mean, I did realize that the church was a people. This is something I think I started thinking a lot about, even in seminary. Uh, what does it mean to be a covenant people? I was at a right. Reformed seminary, and so if the church is a people, what are the what are the attributes of peoplehood? Hmm. And so our peoplehood is different from the peoplehood of being an American, and and uh, and so I think that idea of being. A, a distinctive people, the church as a distinctive people, which meant that we had a way of life that was distinctive—not for moralist, not just for moralistic mm. reasons, not just because we would violate a commandment or you know do something sinful, but we might do something foolish. Mm. <laughs> uh, and that I, I also early on started to realize that wisdom was an underappreciated category. Uh, and that, that that a lot of Christians were concerned about making sure they did what was law, lawful and not unlawful. Mm. But there wasn't as much concern, which is the area, when you talk about culture, most cultural decisions are questions of making prudential judgments. They're questions of choosing to do what's wise or beautiful, uh, which isn't always arbitrated by the same kind of criteria, what's lawful and what's unlawful. And so, uh, so anyway, yeah, all of those things were kicking around. And and then, again, because I was influenced by Postman, I was very concerned with the trivialization of the gospel and the trivialization of Christian faithfulness, that, that being driven by popular culture the and the anti-intellectualism that it encouraged. Have your suspicions of pop culture changed? No. In fact, they've deepened. In ways that I didn't anticipate, they, when they asked me, they asked me five years ago or so, if I would write a, just a second edition, update it. And I said, I'd have to write an <laughs> entirely new book because I've learned so much. And so for instance, uh, well, the things you talk about in the book, I mean, they're just amped they're, up. They're they're amped up. Yeah. I, I love the It's your, still relevant. Your first chapter, you yeah. list all the things, the oh, quotient. Yeah. You just have to add a you lot. Have the, I was th- trying to do yeah. it and I was thinking, well, oh, yeah.
1: How, just, how many points do you get for a smartphone? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And how many tablets do I have? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. How many social media yeah. accounts? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that um, we are plugged in much more, and and we're connected much more than I could have imagined in '89. But, um, I think it, but the
1: thing I didn't approve. Oh, go ahead. I was go just going to say it goes beyond even being plugged in; it's the inability to unplug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's that's yeah. even more profound. Well, I it's think.
0: much harder. Yeah. Because I talk about. I say, you know, trying, trying to in a moment where I was in a weak moment, I was trying to be nice. I basically <laughs> say, sure, there are there are these, you know, there are there are there are TV shows we can enjoy and there are pop pop music we can enjoy. And these there are in, there are innocent pleasures. But we can only receive those innocent pleasures if the order of our consciousness, the order of our sensibility has been ordered by something other than popular culture mm so that those innocent pleasures are available but 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 popular culture as a generator as a matrix of meaning is not is not going to order you well you're not going to be well ordered sorry be, well because it's not going to order you well because its aims uh are not in the interest of the good its aims are an interest i mean first of all and this is something yeah. i did there're two things i didn't appreciate enough this first is the uh, the commercial dyna- dynamic behind popular culture. I was focusing a lot on the form aesthetic form, but I didn't deal with it more as sociologically in that I didn't deal with the commercial how, how it basically popular culture was commercial culture it, it served and it served the interest. So for instance, in the guise of the arts, is that... Well, partly in the guise of the arts, but but more in the guise of just entertainment. So, for instance, one of the things I've, I've been doing a lot in the last eight or nine years on on music—you've heard me give lectures on musical taste yeah. and mm-hmm. how do we and music education. Uh, it, it's remarkable that most young people in America today, their musical tastes are shaped by commercial interests that want to exploit their anxieties about. Identity. And and they're basically exploiting peer pressure and the, all the dynamics of peer pressure yeah. to to make money in order to make money for the most part. I mean, so that so that there's they a, pretend they're telling you how to be independent. Yeah, they pretend they're telling you how to be authentic, and and mm-hmm. they've done market research. They spent billions of dollars on market research to tell you how to be authentic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, it goes back to the the, the unconscious. Yeah. It oh, just yeah. Keeps coming yeah. back to that. And and but and but related to that is the fact that and this is a big thing. Uh, that popular culture is generationally segregating that is it is hmm. and, and that's yeah. I, I wrote an article years after I wrote the book called is popular culture either in which I basically said it's not shaped by the people it, it's not a grassroots phenomenon it's still shaped by elites it's not shaped by high culture elites it's shaped by by commercial elites and 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 whoever they they bless uh, and the big uh, Musicians or actors or directors, they're still an elite. They're clearly an elite. But they're not an elite as high culture was driven by elites who were committed to understanding the truth and pursuing the good and the beautiful. Um, But the other thing is uh, popular culture isn't really even a culture because historically cultures were intergenerational. They were mechanisms to convey uh, ecosystems, to convey convictions. Traditions. Traditions From one generation to the next. So so that uh, anthropologists and sociologists, when talking about a culture, are looking for a way of life that's shared, communal, uh, Wendell Berry-ish, we might say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what a culture is. And so what popular culture is, is a form of either auto-culturalism or post-culturalism. That is, it's either a kind of culture of one, where you basically—well, so what culture becomes is a collection of artifacts that people— Individually assemble, in order to to concoct a a a, a lifestyle, as opposed to a way of life. I think the the difference between those two phases is critical. Mm. A lifestyle is is a collection of of artifacts and 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 Mm. modes of expression that that are usually individually, individualistically, autonomously chosen, or or at least we think they're autonomous. Uh, whereas a way of life is something received it's it's intergenerational mm-hmm. and i and i and it took me a long time to realize that 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 actually is a, an institutionalization of 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 the breaking of the of the of the uh, of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother oliver o'donovan's written about this that the fifth commandment is really a commandment for the sustaining of tradition uh it, uh it will go well, as well with as you. opposed to it's just for the kid yeah it's You're not, not talking just about to a kids child. obedience yeah. yeah yeah he says it's really a commitment to parents more than to children in mm-hmm. a sense that that it's a it's a demand that there be a way of life that's shared and and received but it has to be passed on if it's going to be received it's not to the 7 year old to obey your parents it's to the parent to pass on to the 7 year old the things that has been yeah, passed on yeah, to them yeah yeah and and because as 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 it's a it's a it will go well with you in the land that I give you. Hmm. It's 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 a it's a command with a promise, as we're told, and the promise is one of social coherence and continuity, and and which is hugely critical. Um, and uh, I had been reading Wendell Berry before I wrote that book, but hmm. I don't think I appreciated the extent to which popular culture works against the communal, traditional, uh, intergenerational. Continuity. Well, he, uh, that, he implies that right when he talks oh, yeah. about you know
1: Hannah Coulter's children Absolutely. going, you know, the what the radio does, Absolutely. the ability
0: to go to the, with the yeah. car. Oh yeah, and I, I just was thinking last night of the movie Avalon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the one from the sixties. It's no, it's 80, 70s or eighties. I okay. think eighties, but it's a movie about uh, ethnic com- community, extended extended family, in, in the, I think in the Northeast, and. Uh, one of the kind of subplots, or not even a subplot, it's, but one of the themes that emerges is the way, uh, it starts with this big extended family gathering around a table, and it ends with people eating TV dinners in front of a television, set. Mm. Uh, and and they're totally alienated from each other. And they're, this is before they had small screens to look at while they're sitting at the table. They <laughs> yeah, had a, everyone had their a, own a medium-sized yeah. screen. Yeah, everybody's looking at the screen in the corner. Mm. Uh, but but uh, but again, so the fracturing and and the uh, that that so if I yeah if I was to write a book on popular culture today, I would focus on on. The commercialization of culture and and the 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 individualization of culture more than on the dumbing down mm. that I focused on there, it, yeah, it does seem like the dumbing down
1: portion in theory is solvable with a, with a, with the right people yeah. and enough effort oh, yeah. and enough time. Well, it's interesting. But the how, other part's not necessarily yeah. no, as easily solvable. Not.
0: No, no, it's not. Uh, yeah. You just have to observe the off switch. I mean, that's <laughs> all yeah. these devices have an off switch. Yeah, uh,
1: but and the creators of them yeah. use them. Oh yeah, like absolutely. Jobs never. Yeah, jobs and Gates. Absolutely. You know, Gates doesn't use his yeah. computer. He reads oh, yeah. all think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and he doesn't want his kids in social media or um, or grandkids. Um, yeah, uh, the, the, typically the uh, the people who devise and market these things. They're kind of like drug dealers. They don't take their own <laughs> stuff themselves. <laughs> uh, not because they're cynical. I think they may sincerely, you know, think you know as it, 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 these things can be used well if we have disciplined lives, and they can. Right. I'm sitting here with my iPad in front of me, and uh, and they can be used well, but not. They don't contain. They contain within them a logic that moves toward using them badly, unless you interfere with their their logic Mm. selfies who needs selfies did did we know we needed selfies (laughs) i don't think i don't think so and i don't think we still need them (laughs) well
1: let's let's um let's go back to the beginning of mars hill then because we were talking about how it started around the same time as classical education did not that you necessarily knew about that at the time but how did mars hill in terms of um what it still sort of is, right. you know, you're creating a specific artifact right. um, with a very specific vision in mind, with a distribution model. I mean, how did all that kind of evolve? Even the business side of it? Yeah. I mean, was that, did just... Well,
0: I wanted to create a periodical, first of all. Uh, originally, I thought I was going to create a new print magazine. I wanted to create a periodical because I wanted to have, well, if I could have done a weekly radio program, I would have done a weekly radio right. program. Right, you said, you, and you so you pitched that a thirty-minute
1: couldn't get funding. No, so none of the foundations yeah. would give you. And money.
0: actually, at the time, I actually in the proposal, uh, the, because I was paying attention to the books mm-hmm. on tape thing, I thought, you know what, we th- and this would help to uh, in our business plan. Every month, I was thinking we'd take the best features from that weekly radio program and put them on a cassette, and people could buy a subscription to the cassette. So originally, what became the Mars Hill tapes was going to be a spinoff of a radio program, but I couldn't get funding to, to start the radio program. So I thought, well, I'll just do the spinoff. <laughs> There's nothing to spin it off from. Uh, and um, and so I put a pilot together and sent it to about 50 friends and said, what do you think? Would would people buy this? And it, the response was very, very positive. From uh, And then I produced another pilot, and sent it. I I was still doing this little newsletter. I had about four hundred subscribers. I duplicated four hundred cassettes and sent them off to all these people and said, "This is what I think the next step in this publishing project is going to be. What do you think of it?" And the response there was also overwhelmingly positive. So, um, and again, I I, it, I was thinking it kind of like a radio program, a, a cross between a radio program and a magazine.
1: Well, you told me off off the air, so to speak. That, yeah. Uh, your standards had never changed. Your NPR-inspired standards had well, never
0: well, yeah. altered. Well, I believed that if—well, if, if, if well, there were a couple of things. There were two, two, two things that come to mind right away. First of all, the, the the audio quality has to be really, really high. So no phone interviews. That was one of my rules, that it needs to be as high as I can make it. Because if people are going to listen to a, to an extended conversation, yeah. it's really annoying to listen to a phone conversation is, for, yeah. for a time. The second thing was, unlike radio, I I thought—I was trying to figure out what the price point was. And I realized that to cover the costs of producing the thing, mailing the thing, all the distribution costs, material costs, it was going to be more expensive than the average annual subscription for a magazine because I didn't have advertising. Magazines—your subscription to any given magazine doesn't pay for the cost of the magazine. uh, You're— what pays for the cost of producing the magazine is advertising. Right. But I decided, no, I'm not going to have advertising. Uh, even I don't know if I could have sold it if I tried. But, um, you could now. <laughs> maybe. But, uh, so I thought, if people are going to spend that much money, and it worked out to $6 for a cassette tape, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it was $36 a year, which seemed like a lot to, to shell out. I thought the only way that's going to be plausible is if people listen to it more than once. Because if they if they listen to it once and then think oh, I've done with that, then it comes time to renew. They're thinking, is it really worth spending thirty six dollars for those nine hours that I that I had? Yeah, they've got. A, so I decided to edit it and write it with more depth of content than I did when I did radio, hmm. uh, because radio. When I was doing radio, you couldn't hear it again. Uh, it was it was there, and so you had to write with a particular, even you know, really smart radio. You had to write and pace it in a particular way so that people could get it on first hearing. And if they stopped paying attention for thirty seconds or so, they they didn't get entirely lost. Mm-hmm. But I knew there was a rewind button on this cassette thing, so that so that was one of my ideas early on that that uh, it would be something that people would want to listen to repeatedly and more like an
1: essay than than a conversation
0: yeah more like yeah i don't know i mean it, you know, m- most people don't even reread books uh, True. there's they might have some favorite books true but yeah more like an essay uh you know i, I was just traveling this summer and met some people who had these really old cassettes and say we've listened to this at least 30 times hmm. and they wanted me to sign <laughs> the little uh, j card we call them inside the cassette um because it was one of their favorite cassettes they'd listen to. And so that that was... That must be rewarding. That is rewarding. And I, and I think that was, given the fact that I was kind of a pioneer. I mean, there were no podcasts. There was nothing like this. Um, you're, the, you're the original podcaster. I invented, yeah. Al Gore invented the internet, and I invented the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the headline. There's be, the headline for that. Before there were iPods. <laughs> Ken Myers and how he invented the podcast. <laughs> uh But yeah, uh, an audio periodical was so weird at the time. It was very strange. But uh, now everybody does. it. But one of the driving editorial concerns was uh, I knew that there were so many really good books to help us understand contemporary culture Mm -hmm. and that well-educated Christians didn't know about these books. How Mm. how are they going to know that these books are out there? Mm. Uh, And so I saw it principally – Somebody later said I had the gift of bibliography, that basically <laughs> what I'm doing is letting—and and that was very deliberate. I, early on, I said the main, main thing we're doing is they're providing me the—these people I'm interviewing are giving free content. But really, what I want to do is not just have content. I want other people to read these books because I think that if we're going to navigate this really difficult cultural storm we're in the middle of— which has gotten worse, if you haven't yeah. noticed, yeah. since 1993. I think it's gotten worse. Uh, we need to understand what's going on, and we need really helpful guides to explain how we got here. Because I do, I do believe that in the genealogy of ideas and the genealogy of culture, it really is helpful to understand how we got here. That doesn't chart a path out of the storm, but it does mm-hmm. tell you which way not to go. And in some in some ways, it tells you. Don't simply reinforce. I, I, I'll tell you a, another metaphor that I have that I thought of a few years ago. I often feel like we're that we're in a sinking ship and uh, we're in the hull, we're down in the hull of the sinking ship. And the, the, I look around and the people below me in order to we're taking on water. And the people around me think we can let some of the water out by drilling holes in the bottom of the ship to let the water out, and uh, <laughs> that's not helping. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, thanks so much to Ken Myers for sitting down with me and spending some time chatting. Again, the second part of this interview uh, is available through our journal, through the magazine, over at com. You can subscribe there. Uh, the print issue will be going out to mailboxes in November, and again, this is our annual free issue. If you'd like a full subscription, you can get that for $4 a month or $39 a year. Uh, and just hit subscribe over at formerjournal.com. Thanks so much to the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University for sponsoring Forma this month. You can learn more about what they're doing over there at apu.edu slash honors. And thanks, of course, to you for listening to this conversation, for being a part of what we're doing here at the Former Journal and the Searcy Institute, carrying on the good work that you're carrying on in your homes and schools. I'm David Kern. we will be back next week with another episode of Forma. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.